This morning we continue our series in the book of Acts. We're up to chapter 6 and chapter 7. And we find about the first martyr in the Christian faith. Now it's interesting, every uh, Sunday morning we, we meet together for prayer before church. And uh, one of the things that gets prayed for probably nearly every single week is Christians who are facing horrific persecution in the world. Now regularly we'll pray for the families of those who have been martyred. And our reading this morning from Acts 6 is the description of what happened to the church. The church obviously had been making massive impact in Jerusalem. I think it could have even been as much as a quarter of Jerusalem had become Christians within a month or two of the Christian faith coming into uh, after the day of Pentecost. And so it's quite an impactful time. But with every great impact comes a controversy. And it's interesting that every great uh, preacher has a whole lot of people who don't like them. I remember when Billy Graham came out, there was a whole lot of people who loved Billy Graham. thought, what a greatest thing to ever happen, have the gospel uh, preached so faithfully throughout uh, Australia. But there are others who are just absolutely bitter and angry about him being here. And so you always have two sides of the coin. And this morning we look at the dark side of what happens to Stephen. So let's turn to Acts chapter 6. We see there that um, Stephen is chosen to be one of the seven who is to look after warfare. The uh, apostles had said, look, we need to focus on prayer. We need to be uh, fo- focusing on preaching. And yes, we do want to care for the poor, but uh, we can only stretch ourselves so far because the church had grown so dramatically. So there in verse 6 of uh, chapter 6, Oh, sorry, uh, chapter, uh, verse 1 of chapter 6 says, The weak widows were being neglected in the day of distribution. Then in verse 3, they were told to pick out seven men of... Now, this is a, remember, this is what Stephen's meant to be. A man of good repute, a man who is full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will anoint and appoint to this duty. And they chose Stephen, and he's described as being a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. And so the impact is uh, the church is now trying to, to streamline things. And verse 7 has got some quite interesting comments, it says there. The word of uh, God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So the very people who had spoken out bitterly against Jesus were coming to Christ. And the church suddenly has these priests who are joining the congregation with the other believers. So there's a sense of um, the authenticity of how powerful the faith is. And the church is growing uh, dramatically. And then in verse 8, it says that Stephen, a man full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. So here is a man who's a faithful man, a godly man, a holy man, a righteous man, a great preacher. And so with any great preacher comes conflict. That brings us to our second thing of the conflict, and that's in verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, some of them were Cyrians, others Alexandrians, others from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. Now it looks like it's probably three or four different synagogues that were there. Now these synagogues were called freemen. What's a freeman? If you had been a slave and had been liberated, either you'd paid for your own um, uh, liberation, or your master had said, oh, you've been a great servant, I'll let you go free. But for whatever reason it is, these men who had been slaves had been freed. Now a lot of the Jewish people may have been slaves from uh, 60 BC uh, when the uh, Roman Caesar came and conquered a whole lot of people and took a whole lot of Jews back to Rome as slaves. Because we know when Paul preaches in Rome, there's a lot of Jews who are already there. 
And so we find that these people got very, very bitter and angry with Stephen. So it wasn't the people who were um, the locals. It was the tourists who'd moved into Jerusalem. And in many ways, they're probably more fervent and more uh, bitter at the gospel of grace because they'd gone to great efforts to be truly Jewish. So what do we see happens? Verse 10. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and they seized him and they brought him before the council, the council of the Sanhedrin, the very people who killed Jesus. So you're thinking, eight weeks earlier, they had no trouble killing Jesus. Stephen's down in front of them. And they uh, set up false witnesses, the same as what Jesus had had happen. They said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place in the law. Now, Stephen would never have spoken against the temple, would never have spoken against the law. What he would have said was that we're saved by grace, not the law. That would have been what was upset them. For they had heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth was destroy this place, which Jesus never said, and would change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And they gazing at him, all who sat at the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So they're just hammering him over and over again, but he's got a godly response. Finally, Stephen's allowed to speak. And he starts there and says the, um, uh, his, uh, his message. He starts with the very people they've been saying he spoke against. So he has you know, Abraham, Isaac and Joseph and Moses and David and Solomon, the very heroes of Jewish faith. And so what he does, he gives a very quick thumbline sketch or thumbnail sketch of the whole Old Testament. So with Abraham, I'm just going to do um, some quick cuts out of this passage. It says there, Abraham, go out from your land and go into the land that I will show you in verse 3. Then verse 4. Then he went out from the land in verse 5. He gave him no inheritance in it and the promise stands. So he says, yeah, there's Abraham, man of great faith. God promises to him, but the promises weren't fulfilled in Abraham's time. And then he goes to Isaac. And then verse 5, Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And so he's not speaking against circumcision, he's saying you know, they were set aside to be distinctive. Then we find Joseph in verse 15. Jacob went down into Egypt and he died with his fathers. And they carried him to Shechem, into the land, to the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of silver from the sons of Hamar. And so there's a sense that even Joseph had not fulfilled the promises that had been given Abraham. So we turn now in verse 17 to Moses. It says, Abraham, the man, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt. And Moses supposed that his brothers would understand in verse 25 that God had given them salvation by his hand. But the people did not understand Moses. And as we see Stephen, he's, he's starting to turn the tide. Say, these people you hold as heroes, when they were actually there, they weren't liked. We love Moses now because he's a thousand years before us, or more than that. But we liked him. Well, actually, in their case, probably 1,500 years before. And they say, we liked him because we're not there. We don't have to listen to his, uh, his words. But in Moses' day, the people did not agree with him. They regularly would grumble against him. And so we find in verse 32, Moses says, I'm the, uh, well, God says, I'm the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses was trembling and did not dare to look. And the Lord said to him, Take off your sandals with your feet, for this place you are standing is holy ground. 
I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groanings. And I've come down to deliver them. Now come and I will send you to Egypt. And of course Moses uh, does the plagues. Then in verse 36 says, Moses led them out, performed miracles and signs and wonders in Egypt at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. The next part is rather interesting. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Of course, that's a reference to Deuteronomy 18 where it talks about Jesus coming. But what was the people's response to Moses? Our fathers refused to obey Moses. They thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned back to Egypt. What was Stephen trying to get across to them? You people think you're faithful. But the people in Moses' time, they weren't faithful. They were stubborn. They were hard of heart. They didn't listen to the Spirit. Then he turns to Aaron. And there in verse 40, the people say to Aaron, Make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. They do know what's become of him. He's up the mountain. He's praying. So he's up the mountain praying. It's taken too long. Let's make other gods. They made a calf in those days, offered a sacrifice to the idol, and rejoicing the work of their hands. God had never said to build a calf. They had gone off and created their own spirituality without God. Then Stephen turns and says, think about the prophets. And of course people say, oh, I love the prophets. You say, yeah, but in their time nobody loved them. You know, you'd be, uh, you know, they'd be persecuted, they'd be bullied, they'd be beaten, they would not understood. So there in verse 42, God turning away and gave them over to the worship of the hosts of heaven, as is written in the book of prophets, did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness? You took up the tent of Molech and the star of your god Raphael and the images you made to worship and therefore I sent you in exile in the Babylon. Why were they exiled? Because they were stubborn of heart. They did not listen to God and they uh, had their opinion was stronger than God's opinion. Now we turn to David. David is always seen as the greatest man uh, in uh, Jewish history. Uh, the, the David today, thousands of years later, is still deeply admired in the nation of Israel. Now, for Bible said we've been going through 1 and 2 Samuel, and we're horrified at how um, immoral and corrupt and decadent that whole society was and how dysfunctional poor David was. But it's interesting, in verse 46 it says, David who found favour in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for God. Of course, David couldn't do it because he had blood on his hands. And uh, who was the builder of the temple? Solomon. So there in verse 47, it was Solomon who built the house for me. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, Heavens is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So even in the building of the temple that they deeply love, God is saying, Yes, I know you want to build me a temple, but the heavens is my temple. You're trying to put me into a box. I'll allow you to build a box, but I don't fit into your box. So as we go through it, what Stephen's trying to get across to these people is that throughout the whole of Jewish history, they've been rebellion. They've been stubborn-hearted. They had rejected the will of God in their life. They were not Holy Spirit-centered people. They wanted to do their own thing rather than God's word. 
And he finishes with these rather powerful words. He says, you stiff-necked people. Now imagine if I told you now, you stiff-necked people, you uncircumcised in heart and ears, you've all resisted the Holy Spirit. Most of you say, how dare he say that about us? We are really good Presbyterians here. <laughs> Except for those who think they're really good Christians and don't like the term Presbyterian. But at the end of the day, most of us would be quite upset if I told you all that you're a bunch of sinners going to hell. You think, what right does he have to do that? But in Stephen's case, he knew they were a bunch of sinners who had rejected the heart of God. Why? Because weeks earlier, they're the very men who said, crucify Jesus. They're the very men who knew the, law, the, 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 the commentary in the court case against Jesus was lies. And they let it happen. Goes on, as your fathers did, so do you. Why was he saying? As it happened in Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, and Solomon, and the prophets, every generation has been sinful, and you're no different. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who receive the law are delivered by angels, and you do not keep it. What was their trouble? Their worship was external as a substitute for internal obedience to God. So how did Jesus view the Sanhedrin, this council? How did Jesus view Jews who had rejected the heart of the Holy Spirit? Luke 11, verse 47. Woe to you if you build tombs of the prophets and it was your fathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and prove the deeds of your fathers because it was they who killed them and you built their tombs. For this reason also, at the wisdom of God said, I will send to them prophets and apostles and some of them they will kill and some will be persecuted so that the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who was killed between the altar and the place in the house of God, yes, I tell you, it shall be charged against this very nation. So one of the struggles we have here is that uh, these people had a, a deep rejection of the will of God and the work of the Spirit of God in their life. And we have two responses. The first response is that of the crowd that's there. Verse 54. Now when they heard these things, they were enraged. They ground their teeth. And they opted to stone Stephen. That's the first response. The response of the crowd to Stephen. The second response is the response of Stephen to the crowd. It says in verse 55, Stephen was a man full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened. The Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And what's the crowd's response? They cried out at him with a loud voice, stopping their ears, rushing together. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man called Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. 
as he fell upon his knees. When we say he's fell upon his knees, he was thinking he's fallen upon his knees. As he's falling on his knees, there's stones just hitting him one after the other the whole time all this is happening. And he yells out to the crowd that is there, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And with this, he fell asleep. Very subtle way to say he was killed. He was martyred. He was destroyed for his faith. Now this week we just had the horrific story of a number of uh, Egyptian Christians who uh, a bus was attacked uh, and uh, a whole of them were gunned down. Now imagine some of the Muslim terrorists would say, look what joy we've done. But the Christians are saying, yes, you made us get to heaven earlier. How bad is that? So for you and I, to die is gain, not loss. To be in the presence of God is glory, not shame. To be surrounded by angels, they sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Heaven and earth is filled with the glory of God. Is that a punishment or a joy? So even in martyrdom, For the Christian believer, there's a sense of hope and assurance. I'm regularly amazed that the Coptic Orthodox Christians, who when the Muslims burn down their churches, kill their children, wipe out their wives, take out their friends and their family, they'll write across the walls, we forgive you. What a powerful Testimony to the love of Christ. So what was their problem? Why did they really hate Stephen? Because what he said was true. And I think that's probably what upset them the most, is they knew what he said was true. They did know how bad and how stubborn-hearted each generation has been. As we go through the New Testament, there's a couple of key things that says about our relationship with the Holy Spirit. There's five things that we can do that can limit the Spirit. The first was found in Acts 5, which we didn't look at in this series. is Ananias and Sapphira who lie about how much money they've given to the church. It was their money to begin with. They lie about how much they've given and they end up dying. And so the first thing we can do is we can actually lie to the Holy Spirit. We can be dishonest about what's actually happening in our life. The second phrase we've got there is we grieve the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to grieve? To make sad, to make something sorrowful. We will allow bitterness or rage or anger or harsh words or slander, malicious behaviour take the place in our lives where it should not be. What does this do? It grieves the Holy Spirit. Why? Because the Holy Spirit loves us and is in relationship with us. And we should never harbour grudges against other people. So there's a sense that we can hinder what God wants to do in us. The third thing the Bible warns us about the Holy Spirit is that we can quench the Holy Spirit. So 1 Thessalonians 5.19 says, Do not put out the Spirit's fire. So how can you quench the Holy Spirit? Unbelief? Uncertainty? When we hinder the work of God and what He's doing? Quenching the Spirit can occur uh, when we flatly refuse to do what God's will is in our life. The question we need to ask ourselves sometimes is, is there a sin in our life that we're not dealing with? Are there parts of our life that we have not given over to God? Have we tried to push God's Spirit away from where we should be? That's quenching the Spirit. The fourth thing 
is what these people did with Stephen. Resist the Holy Spirit. As Stephen spoke, he spoke to unbelieving Jews. Now the Holy Spirit is incredibly patient and persistent. And it's possible to resist the Holy Spirit's pleadings in our life. And there's many times that we are nudged by God. And we say, please nudge us, go away. And we don't want to hear God speak to us. But Genesis 6 verse 3 says, My spirit will not contend with man forever. What happens? The flood. And we've got to ask ourselves, did they kill Stephen? Because they thought he was wrong. Or did they kill him because what he said was so right and it cut them to the heart? And the two choices were, I need to repent or I need to kill him. And most said, let's kill him. Including Saul, who sat looking after all the clothes, feeling quite dignified, thinking, I'm doing a good job here while they killed that man. He was so excited by what he saw that day he got letters to go to Damascus to wipe out the Christians and upon the road to Damascus falls off the horse there's lights around him he goes blind and a voice says to him Saul, Saul why do you persecute the church? no Saul, Saul why do you persecute me? The fifth thing we can do is the blaspheme the Holy Spirit, which is probably most horrific. The blaspheme the Holy Spirit is considered the most un- an unpardonable sin. And so we find there in uh, Matthew verse 12, verse th- uh, uh, chapter 12, verse 31. And so I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Even who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. So blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is considered the most serious offence that there is no forgiveness. And we then say, well, what does that mean? Does it mean if we use the Holy Spirit as a swear word? I hit my, my thumb with the, uh, with the hammer and I say, oh my gosh, Holy Spirit, it's saying, saying, oh God. Is that what blasphemy the Holy Spirit is? No. We're going to say to yourself, what's the main role of the Holy Spirit? The main role of the Holy Spirit is to convict people of their sin and draw them to Christ. If a man goes through his whole life rejecting, rejecting the conviction of God's uh, sovereignty of his life, if a man goes through his whole life rejecting the sin he does in his life and never asks Jesus to be Lord and Saviour, that's blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. To blaspheme the Spirit is to insult the Spirit, is to resist the work of the Spirit. And the question we still need to ask ourselves sometimes, because blasphemy the Holy Spirit is a sin of unbelievers, not of Christians. But we need to ask ourselves, are there things about our life that is holding God at a distance? Are there sins that are so secret no one knows but ourselves, but we know that we are doing things that are wrong? What's our response? We need to confess them to a God who says, I am faithful and just and will forgive you. <coughs> your sins. God is quick to forgive, hungers for his family to come home and to not hold uh, things in our hands that should not be there. Let's just bow our heads and pray. Father God, forgive us for the times that we have sinned. 
Father, forgive us for those sins that we do now that we won't deal with. Father, bring us to repentance, purify us, transform us. Father, may we not be like the crowd in front of Stephen who really do not grasp the true nature of you. Father, help us to grow. Help us to have a hunger for your word. Help us to be on fire for you. May we be a light in darkness and salt in a world that's lost its taste. Amen.